Welcome. This is podcast number six for our series on the Gospel of Mark. The title of this podcast is When Does the Kingdom Come? When Does the Kingdom Come? This coming Sunday we will be focusing on Mark 11, 12, and 13. Uh, The question, when does the kingdom come, really has to do with the entire last six chapters of Mark's gospel for these last two Sundays that we'll be together. Uh, We'll be looking at chapters 11 through 16 this week and 14 through 16 the following week. What happens in the narrative shape this week? The, uh, The geography is now Jerusalem. For the geography for the entire rest of the gospel now is Jerusalem. In 11 through 13, it's Jerusalem especially focusing around the temple. Most of the action happens in the temple. It begins with uh, Palm Sunday, with Jesus coming in from, from Bethany, from outside the city, into Jerusalem. He comes to the temple, turns right around and goes back to Bethany again. Uh, Bethany will be kind of his uh, safe house two miles away. Um, the next day he comes back in and we have the temple, the temple cleansing, the temple incident. And Je- again, Jesus goes back, back home again. The third day, Jesus goes back into town. And there um, the authorities, are meet, they, they meet him and they're ready to stop him from doing any third piece of street theater or whatever it is he's going to be doing. And they ask him, what, a th- what right do you have? What authority do you have for doing what you're doing? And then, so then the, uh, the, a new series of, cl- of, of conflict scenes begins between Jesus and the Jerusalem authorities that runs from 1127 through the end of chapter 12. We'll spend some time this coming Sunday looking at what each of those is about and what's, what's, the, heart of the, what's the heart of the struggle. That section ends, by the way, with the central charge of abuse of the little ones. The scribes who devour widows' houses and this one widow who gives everything. Uh, that's, that ends that whole series. It doesn't quite end the whole series because in chapter 13, the first couple of verses, Jesus says the temple is going to be overthrown. It's going to be, it's going to be destroyed. Then the rest of 13, the disciples are wondering, when is this going to happen and what, what's the sign? How can we know? Chapter 13 has often been assumed to be an end times prediction. Jesus predicting the end of the world and everything else. We're going to be asking whether that's really the case or not and what's really going on in chapter 13. So that's a great deal of what's going to happen in this this Sunday as we look at Mark 11, 12, and 13. Uh, 14, 15, and 16 will still be, geographically, will still be in Jerusalem, but there the focus is going to be around the upper room, uh, the high priest's hall, uh, Pilate's headquarters, and then Golgotha and the tomb. I'd like to focus on for the rest of this podcast is the question, when does the kingdom come? And again, this is a question for both of our last two sessions. You might remember that at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the first time Jesus shows up in Mark, um, first of all, he's baptized by John. 
No. And then, uh, and then goes out into the desert for his temptation. And then in, come, he comes into Galilee and makes his first proclamation. And this is actually the first word that we hear from Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is, it's breaking in. Um, turn around and trust this good news. So Jesus is here to predict and to embody and to initiate this kingdom of God, this reign of the gathering God. Well, if he's saying it's at hand, it's breaking in, it has drawn near, when then does the kingdom come? Does it come at the end of the world? Does it come, when does it come? What, and what is it when it comes? As we wrestle with that, there's an interesting thing. The kingdom language is running throughout Mark's gospel, all over the place. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the reign of God. But king? You don't see king very much. You do see king applied to someone like Herod, King Herod in chapter 6, um, and other occasional kings that are referred to. But Jesus himself is never called king until the end. In chapter 6, we, have, we saw that Mark sets the story of Herod side by side with Jesus feeding the 5,000, and he has that language of sheep without a shepherd. And that's a way of talking king without actually saying the word king. And so we have these two kings as foils, the one king who lives out of fear and kills the other king who lives out of love and, and feeds the people. That's as close as we get to any declaration of Jesus as king. Jesus is really reluctant to let anybody use that Messiah term because Messiah is understood by so many as a particular kind of king. Well, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not ready to let people sign on to that kind of language. And so you might remember back in chapter 8 when Peter finally caught that piece right. Oh, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Keep it under wraps. And it's obvious in the very next passage that Peter's idea of Jesus' Messiahship is not Jesus' idea. Well, this, the king language, then, is, is really kept under wraps until this part of Mark. Immediately before this, at the very end of the way of the cross, we had blind Bartimaeus. And do you remember what he kept crying out? Have mercy on me, son of David. There's a reason why people were shutting him up. He was calling Jesus son of David, that is, Messiah, that is, king, and everybody knew how politically charged a term that was. They wanted to hush him up really fast. But Jesus didn't hush him up. That's the first time that Jesus accepts king language, David language, from anybody. And immediately after that, then, we have the, the beginning of our section today, where Jesus um, engineers his first piece of street theater, which is this royal parade into Jerusalem. He rides in on, a, on a, uh, the colt, the foal of an ass, 
in fulfillment of a Zechariah passage that names your king coming to you. And the people know exactly what he's saying as, he do, as they do that. And so they hail him, Messiah. Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the kingdom of David that is coming. And Jesus accepts it. But then there's a weird thing. Here he comes in with his royal parade. He comes into Jerusalem, looks at the temple, and immediately leaves again and goes back to Bethany. He accepts the title of king and does nothing about it whatsoever. Well, that's hanging in the air throughout these chapters. And it's really finally at the, finally when, when Jesus uh, comes to own the term directly is at his trial before the Sanhedrin. When they put him on trial and finally the high priest asks you, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, the Messiah, the king deemed to be son of God? And Jesus says, I am. But he doesn't stop there. He ups the ante. And you will see Daniel's human one, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus doesn't just accept their designation of what Messiah means. He ups the ante into something greater yet. Then he'll go to, go to trial before, before Pilate, and Pilate will ask him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is a little cagier. That's what you say. And then throughout chapter 15, there's this explosion of king language. King of the Jews, king of the Jews, king of Israel. All of it in mockery. Every time in chapter 15 that Jesus is called king of the Jews, it's mockery. But it's of course true. So here's Mark's gospel, which has avoided king language until now. And suddenly, king is splashed all over the place at the cross. Hold that thought. We're asking, when does the kingdom come? Mark's gospel has three really puzzling, Jesus gives really three puzzling time-based time predictions. The first one is in chapter 9, verse 1 comes at the end of the first time he talks about the way of the cross. Chapter 9, 1. He said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The kingdom of God is coming, and some of you standing here today will see it. It'll happen within your lifetime. There's the first one. Second one is chapter 13, part of what we'll be looking at this Sunday, verse 30. Um, after the earlier parts of the chapter that really focus more on the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, um, starting in 24 then, in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, etc. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. Then he, then he gives the par little parable of the fig tree, and then he says, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, this is verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. This generation. 
Who can wrestle a little bit about what generation are you talking about? But this generation, the generation that experiences all this stuff, this generation, your generation, will not pass away before all of this is fulfilled. The end and all that is coming within your lifetime, you folks I'm talking to. Third passage is once again when Jesus is standing before the high priest, chapter 14, verse 62. When they ask him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? He says, I am, and you, you high priest and Sanhedrin, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. What I'm hearing in each of those is a time frame of those who will see this and experience this. Some of you standing here, this generation, you, High Priest and Sanhedrin, you will all experience this. What you will experience is the kingdom coming in power, the Son of Man coming from the right hand of, of heaven, coming with the clouds of heaven. It'll all happen, and you'll see it in your lifetime. Well, the end of the world didn't come back then. We've gone on for 2,000 more years. Was Jesus mistaken? That actually was what uh, Albert Schweitzer, who had been a theologian before he became a physician and went off to Africa and to forget theology, um, he wrestled with this very stuff, and he, he was convinced that Jesus thought he was going to end the world and failed to do so. And Schweitzer couldn't handle it, and he changed his life direction and just went and went to serve in a different way. Was Jesus wrong? Or are we mistaken about what, what we think the fulfillment of this is? some pieces of the puzzle. Um, so this is as we move through uh, these next two weeks, through this Sunday and through the following Sunday, I invite you to think about some of the things that show up in Mark's telling of this story. Number one, remember um, back in chapter six, the way the first time that king stuff comes up, Mark contrasts Herod the king and Jesus, the shepherd king. The one king who kills out of fear, the other king who feeds and teaches out of love, who gives himself. We've got a totally different picture of what kingship is about. Number two, in chapter 10, this is right at, right at the, near the end of the, um, of the way of the cross section. That's when James and John are wanting the chief seats in the kingdom. The whole passage starts in chapter 10, verse 35. James and John are wanting, the, wanting Jesus' right and left hand positions. When they ask for, for those positions, first Jesus asks, asks them, um, he asks them, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you, can you take on the baptism that I am baptized with? Both of those are images of Jesus' death. They don't catch it. They say, yeah, we can do it. 
And Jesus says, well, actually you will drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism. Um, so that's the second piece um, that while, while James and John are seeking positions in his glory, Jesus re-aims them to his cup and his baptism, which means his death. And then he goes on to say, this is number three, that the positions at Jesus' right and left hand are already spoken for. He says, you will drink the cup, you will be baptized with that baptism, but those places at my right hand and at my left, they already are given to somebody else. To whom are they given? Nowhere do we ever again see anybody in Mark at Jesus' right hand and at his left until we get to the cross. The positions at Jesus' right hand and his left are held by crucified criminals in his glory. Number four, these Jesus then in that same passage gathers all the disciples together and says, listen, you know the way of the, of the rulers of this world and those who lord it over them. That's what lordship and kingship is like in this world. It's throwing your weight around and exercising authority over people, lording it over people. He says, that's not going to be the way with you. We're doing it differently. The Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Once again, so here, here again, Jesus has a chance to define kingship in a way that's very different from any kind of kingship this world's ever seen. And it involves his giving his life as a ransom for many. Are you catching it so far? We've had a number of references already then where Jesus explicitly ties together his kingship with his cross. Number five. Chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem claiming kingship, and then he does nothing to further that earthly claim. He claims it, looks at the temple, and goes back home again. Number six, in chapter 14, there's a woman who anoints, we'll see this next week, uh, who, who anoints Jesus. Um, it doesn't say in, in that text exactly what she has in mind as she anoints Jesus' head. Why would she anoint him? It's an act of love, surely. Is she anointing him as king? Has she caught on that this is the king, the Messiah, and she's anointing him? Whether, she does, whether that's what she's thinking or not, Jesus turns it around into an anointing for his burial. So once again, a potential royal image becomes a death image instead. Number seven. In Mark 14, verse 25, Jesus is at the Last Supper. And right after the verses where he establishes, where he initiates the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, then he says, Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine. I'll never drink wine again. Until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I hear that, and I think, okay, in the time of fulfillment, in the festival time when he'll drink, drink wine again and, and it will be a grand party. But if you follow along in Mark's gospel, Jesus appears to drink wine one more time. This is chapter 15, just after Jesus has cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Someone runs, fills a sponge with sour wine, puts it on a stick, and gives it to him to drink. Now, it doesn't quite go as far as say that Jesus drank it, but it says they, they put, Jesus, put wine up there for Jesus to drink. Is Mark trying to clue us in that Jesus is now drinking it new in the kingdom of God? That was number seven. Number eight, Jesus finally claims his messiahship and more, as we saw at his trial. I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He proclaims his messiahship right at the moment where he's about to be condemned to death. And in fact, that claim provokes, finally gives them what they need to be able to con convict him. Number nine, in chapter 15, over and over again, Jesus is mocked as king of the Jews or king of Israel. He's mocked by Pilate. He's mocked by bystanders, by, this, by, the, by the religious leaders that are watching at the cross. He's mocked by, by the, the, his fellow crucified. Over and over again, mocked as king, king of the Jews or king of Israel. Is it only mockery or is it true? Why does king language suddenly suddenly blossom at the cross. And then number 10, at the cross, Jesus gives his life as a ransom, which he told us back in chapter 10, was what his power was all about, his, his kingship. He drinks his cup and he undergoes his baptism. The positions at his right and left are filled and he drinks wine again in verse 36. throughout Jesus' ministry, when is Jesus finally enthroned? I think Mark is telling us it's at the cross. That's where the kingdom of God is, right there. We'll talk about it some more this Sunday and the Sunday after. Thank you. <music>